Okay, folks, I'm just going to uh, introduce to you a, a recording uh, from Masulit, the, the website I've mentioned to you before. Uh, this is on Parliament, it's a brand new one, um, although the material uh, referred to doesn't take us through to 2020 or such, but it's been obviously edited and put together. Uh, it's called Parliament of the United Kingdom. It looks at uh, various conflicts in Parliament, particularly focus on the, the relationship between the executive or government and the legislature, our legislatures, um, Parliament as a whole, House of Lords is one of the, the talks. But the, the five talks are one on conflict, one on divisions, one on political parties, one on the House of Lords, one on Brexit. Um, I'm making it as a podcast, not as a video cast. I think it's just as useful because there's not very many, shall we say, diagrams or indeed images that are shown. There's no video footage, for instance. Uh, the first uh, piece is an introduction, but sort of 45 seconds or so. Then there's uh, 11 minutes 35 on conflict within Parliament, uh, particularly the House of Commons. Uh, second area is on divisions, which you might say is that not one and the same thing. Well, you'll find that uh, Louise Thompson indicates that particularly useful, these two, when it comes to considering the, the relationship in terms of executive dominance or executive weakness in, in relation to Parliament. Then she looks at political parties, something perhaps I should have spent a little bit more attention on, particularly influenced perhaps now of smaller parties like the DUP under Theresa May, or clearly the coalition 2010 to 2015. We have clearly also divisions within parties that she looks at. Uh, that lasts 16 minutes, 17, uh, the longest piece by far. Uh, then she goes to look at number four, the House of Lords for 12 minutes, 44 seconds. References there, particularly things like the Salisbury Convention, uh, crossbenchers, uh, the fact that no party has an overall majority in the House of Lords and though limited, nevertheless quite influential House of Lords. And finally she takes the case study of Brexit to show how that has impacted upon relationships within the UK Parliament and relationship with government in particular. Uh, obviously this predates Boris Johnson, it predates obviously the events of the last month or so, uh, but I still think it's a particularly useful set of lectures and I hope you gain something from it. Some of it will sound familiar, uh, some of it may sound new and some of the examples and particularly examples are very important for you guys some of the examples she gives are particularly valuable for you so uh, without further ado this is Dr Louise Thompson I'm just about to start now I'm Louise Thompson I'm senior lecturer in politics at the University of Manchester and I'll be delivering a course on the UK Parliament, specifically on executive legislative relations. And we'll be looking at five different modules. The first one will be um, looking at conflict in Parliament, how it happens, why it matters. Second of all, we'll be looking at divisions in Parliament and the ability of Parliament to say no to government. Then we'll go on to talk about the importance of political parties and the role of political parties um, in terms of scrutiny and accountability. Then we'll be looking at the House of Lords and its role in scrutinising government and how it works with the House of Commons. And finally, we'll look at the case study of Parliament and Brexit. I'm Louise Thompson and I'm Senior Lecturer in Politics at the University of Manchester. And in this module, I'll be looking at how and why conflict matters. Um, between the UK Parliament and the UK government. So when we think about political systems, we often think about that conflict between the legislative branch, as we call it, and the executive branch. And if you've studied US politics before, then you're probably very, very aware of this, because in a system with a more strict separation of powers, we see examples of this a lot more often. So you might be familiar with um, occasions of gridlock, 
where um, the US Congress uh, disagrees with what the president wants to do and things like the finance bill not getting through um, Congress and the whole of the government shutting down. And these sorts of examples are very visible, they're very extreme and we tend to kind of latch onto them. In the UK, the fact that we don't have this very strict separation of powers, um, we have an executive, a government that is drawn from parliament, from the legislature, kind of offsets this a little bit. Um, it means that uh, the government can more or less bank on having a parliamentary majority um, after every general election. It means that it can be very confident in getting its business through, so its legislation, its bills passed through parliament, through the House of Commons and through the House of Lords. And it means um, that um, we don't really see as much very visible, very extreme kind of examples of this sort of conflict. And parliamentary conventions can kind of add to this a little bit um, and make it even less likely to happen. So things like the Salisbury Convention, as we call it, in the House of Lords, whereby peers want um, or will try not to veto um, or cause problems for the government if um, a bill has been explicitly written in a government manifesto, um, a party manifesto at election time, um, they'll not vote it down usually at second reading. But despite this, the sort of classic way that political scientists like to think about Parliament, to talk about Parliament and to write about Parliament and its relationship with government is to think about these conflicts between the, the two branches when they occur. Um, and most of the 20th century um, political science has been defined by studies of uh, Parliament's scrutiny of legislation and those occasions in which it has or it has not um, actually said no to government. So I'm going to look at the sort of occasions where we see this sort of conflict in the House of Commons um, and in the House of Lords. So if we start with the very design of the House of Commons chamber, um, if we think about the way that those green benches are set up facing each other, then it really sets up um, MPs to have this kind of conflict with the government. We have the government on one side and we have the official opposition or the government in waiting sitting on the other side. Um, Conflict in some ways is the wrong word for what we talk about when we think about um, the relationship between Parliament and government. Um, it's not always as simple as Parliament just saying no to government. Often it's more about challenging government, testing government, probing what government actually wants to do. So thinking about it using those sort of words is sometimes a better way of actually doing it. So where do we actually see this happening in Parliament? And because so much of political science has been dominated by um, legislation, legislation is the best way um, to start thinking about it. So if we think about whenever um, government wants to pass a piece of legislation, it has a bill and it needs to get it through Parliament, where do we actually see um, this conflict occurring? So first of all, we see it at what we call second reading. Um, and this is a general debate in the House of Commons um, where, and the House of Lords where uh, MPs or peers will debate what we call the main principles of the bill. So they won't actually talk about the text of the bill, they'll talk about um, the broad arguments, the broad ideas, the, the general um, thing that the government is actually trying to introduce or to change. Um, we'll see a government minister standing up in the Commons and opening the debate, making the case for the government and for why this bill needs to be introduced. And then straight away we'll see the opposition minister, um, a Labour minister at the moment, standing up and, and responding to this. And usually saying actually they don't think that it's a very good idea, they don't agree with the way that the government's doing it, you know, they want to change something. And then we'll see um, MPs from both sides of the House actually talking about what they think about the bill. At the end there'll be a vote which may or may not be passed. Um, if it's not passed um, then the bill cannot proceed to the next stage. 
from here, the bill will go to a committee stage. And there again, we see this kind of conflict um, in the very design of the rooms that it occurs in. So we see um, MPs sitting, facing each other again, like in the House of Commons chamber, um, in a public bill committee room, a government on one side, opposition MPs on the other side. Um, and it's a smaller group of MPs, so it's not in the, the extreme kind of atmosphere of the House of Commons chamber. Um, but we still see the same sort of thing happening. A government minister standing up, speaking about part of the bill, and then an opposition MP standing up and saying, actually, I don't like this, I don't agree with this, we need to change this. Um, and MPs might be voting on particular words in the bill, particular phrases, particular clauses, um, and they can remove things from the bill, they can try and add things from the bill. And the whole thing works through debates and votes in the same way as it does on the floor of the House. We might then see the bill um, go back to the floor of the House of Commons for its report stage, providing it gets through a bill committee, which it probably will. Um, and then we'll see the same thing happening again. MPs trying to test the government, trying to um, suggest more changes, more amendments to the bill. Government saying that actually the, the bill is amazing, it should pass, and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and we get this kind of to and fro So this conflict happens all the way through. And at the very end, we'll see a final um, debate called third reading and a final debate on the bill. If this passes, the bill will then go to the House of Lords and the whole process will be repeated. So we can see the way that conflict is really built into every single stage of that legislative process. We can also see conflict happening in other areas of the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Um, so happening maybe at oral question times. So um, set occasions on each day of the parliamentary week where MPs can put questions to government ministers um, um, it works on a topic basis, so there's a particular department answering questions on a particular day. And again, we can see MPs trying to challenge or test the government about their actions or about a particular piece of policy. Um, so this week, um, as I'm filming this at um, the Work and Pensions question time, um, we saw former Brexit minister David Davis stand up and ask um, the DWP minister Amber Rudd about um, when the government would be um, reforming the process um, for um, disability living allowance um, appeals. Um, and the minister had to you know, respond to this um, on the floor of the house, then and there, no, no notice about what sort of question um, she'd be getting. We can also see it happen more thoroughly, this kind of conflict, in parliamentary select committees. And that might be in the House of Commons or it might also be in the House of Lords. And probably the best example of this kind of conflict in committee is what we call the Liaison Committee. Um, which is a um, very prestigious committee in the House of Commons. It's composed of all the select committee chairs and it has the job of uh, bringing the Prime Minister in front of it, uh, usually twice a year, and um, quizzing him or her for an hour, an hour and a half on some particular um, themes. So um, in 2018 and in early 2019, um, we saw Theresa May come before the Liaison Committee and be grilled um, about the government's plans for Brexit um, and the uh, deal that the government had negotiated. Um, and there, this conflict was perhaps more prolonged, even though it wasn't in the very visible um, and public kind of atmosphere of the House of Commons. Um, and the Prime Minister was really put on the spot and had to answer question after question on you know, what was happening, the progress with the deal, what was happening with negotiations, what would happen if Parliament didn't agree to the deal, um, what would happen in the event of a no deal. Um, and she was really put on the spot for an hour, an hour and a half on each occasion. Um, and, it's, and this is repeated in, in every single select committee through Parliament. They can bring those ministers before them um, and ask them those sorts of questions. So 
we know that conflict occurs in Parliament. We know that there's this relationship between Parliament and government where Parliament can test government. Um, so finally, I just want to think about why that conflict is actually important. And the first reason it's important is quite simply because it means that government can actually do whatever it likes. It will be continually and repeatedly tested and probed um, by MPs and by peers. Um, so even though we might think that the government is dominant, it's not really got a completely free reign and it has to come before the House of Commons in various arenas or the House of Lords and actually answer for its actions. Second thing is that it can put pressure on the government to actually change its plans um, or to explain itself. Um, so if I go back to the example of Department of Work and Pensions questions um, from this week, um, the government minister, Amber Rudd, has actually been quizzed by MPs so many times about very particular um, constituency, constituency issues for um, benefits and disability payments and things like this um, that she's had to set up her own kind of minister's surgery outside of the House of Commons chamber. Um, and she said in House of Commons um, in question time this week that she'll be running these surgeries. She runs them the week after question time. And it means that MPs can come and um, she can talk a bit more in person about their particular issues that they've raised in the chamber. And this is because she's been put on the spot so many times by MPs about very specific cases that the government just haven't prepared for and they don't really have the answers for, um, that she's had to set up alternative means to do this. The third one is that it's played out in a very public arena. Um, so most of these exchanges don't happen behind closed doors. They happen in bits of parliament where members of the public can go and sit in and watch. They happen um, in places where they'll be put on as footage on the television news. Um, you know, anyone can log on to parliament's website and watch what's happening. Um, you know, they can't hide from this kind of scrutiny and conflict. Unfortunately, it's not always plain sailing for the government. Um, you know, we'll see in other modules that um, they don't always get their own way. They're often, um, they have to make compromises or climb downs on um, big pieces of legislation. Um, and, you know, big examples from previous parliaments might include um, the watering down of terrorism legislation under the Gordon Brown government um, because of concerns of MPs. It might be the U-change on um, tax credits under David Cameron or, more recently, the difficulties that Theresa May has had getting her Brexit deal through Parliament. So academics and political commentators really like to study this kind of conflict, but we've got to be really careful about the type of conflict we look at and also the way that we interpret it. Um, you know, big conflict doesn't happen very often. Lots of the time it's on a much smaller, milder kind of level, or it often happens um, behind the scenes. And these are the sorts of things that we'll go on to look at in the next modules. So in the last module, we looked more broadly at types of conflicts that happen between Parliament and government. And in this module, I want to look at um, some more visible examples of this conflict, about the occasions where Parliament actually says no to government. And when we talk about this kind of conflict, what we really, most of the time, thinking about are divisions or, or votes, um, usually the divisions or votes that happen in the House of Commons. So I'd like to think, first of all, about... Um, what these divisions actually tell us, and then we can think about how useful they actually are when we come to interpret that relationship between Parliament and government. So you probably know already that it's very rare that the House of Commons actually does say no to government when it comes to um, considering a piece of legislation. And 
because of this, most of us are familiar with some very specific examples. And one of those examples is the shop spill of 1986, which happened a long, long time ago, um, but is generally the example that you see talked about in lots of the textbooks um, about Parliament and its ability to say no to government. And um, this division happened at the second reading stage of the shops bill. So this is the point at which um, MPs have been able to debate the bill for the very first time. Um, and then they've gone on to have this division. And it's under the Margaret Thatcher government and the government lose by 14 votes. So it's quite a, a narrow loss, but it's a loss all the same. The bill's not allowed to proceed any further. Now, there have been other defeats um, for governments at second reading before this time. Most of them happen when and we've got a situation of a minority government, so a government that's not got a very large um, parliamentary majority that can rely on. And so this example of the shops bill is cited time and time again as the best example of parliament actually saying no and having this conflict um, with government. Now, in reality, virtually every single government will have some sort of defeat in the House of Commons chamber at some point. So if we think about the Tony Blair governments with their absolutely massive parliamentary majorities, um, the stereotypical kind of example of a government that can do what it wants in the House of Commons chamber, we still see this government ha actually experiencing defeats um, on the floor of the House of Commons. Now, it might not be defeats where an entire bill is rejected, but it might be defeats in which we see um, an amendment to a bill um, being accepted, so an opposition amendment being accepted, or a government change to its own bill being rejected, or it might be that there's been a debate on what we call a motion in the House of Commons, so a more general debate about something in which um, the government wants MPs to vote one way and MPs have actually decided that they don't agree and they'll vote um, in the opposite division lobby. So two more recent examples of this kind of defeat, but not a defeat on a big piece of legislation, are first of all um, the rejection of military action under um, the David Cameron um, government um, in 2013, where MPs ruled out um, military intervention in Syria, again after um, quite a long debate, a whole day's debate in the chamber, and then a formal vote at the end of it. So it's not a vote on a bill, it's a vote on a motion, but it's still an occasion in which Parliament um, has been able to say no. And another one is, of course, the um, more recent um, Brexit defeats for Theresa May, where we saw um, the government being defeated on three occasions on the floor of the House of Commons. So on three occasions, the Commons said no, it did not agree um, with the Prime Minister's negotiated Brexit deal. Um, and we might think about that as being a piece of legislation, but it actually wasn't a piece of legislation. Um, it was just a general motion of the House that MPs were voting on. So I don't want to suggest that studying and divisions in the House of Commons or the House of Lords are not important, um, because they are, and, um, and they're important for a few reasons. Firstly, because they show us ultimately how powerful Parliament can be. Um, it might not exercise its ability to withhold its assent very often, um, but when it cares about something and when an issue is big enough, it will say no to government and government will have to listen to it. Secondly, it can show us occasions where government is forced to listen to Parliament. And the example of David Cameron and the uh, motion on intervention in Syria is a really, really good example of this. Because immediately after the vote, MPs have all returned from the division lobbies, they've returned to their seats in the chamber, the Prime Minister has come back to the chamber to listen to the result, and as soon as they announce that the government have lost, um, you see the Prime Minister stand up uh, at the dispatch box and he says straight away, actually, that the House has spoken, he will listen to the House of Commons and, you know, we won't see uh, this military intervention anymore. The UK won't join the US um, in these airstrikes on Syria. Um, 
We can also see maybe um, in the case of Theresa May and the Brexit deal that it's the defeats in the House of Commons that finally force the government to actually begin a process of negotiation um, with the opposition parties. So again, government is being forced to in some way um, actually listen to Parliament. Finally, obviously, divisions can be really, really exciting, um, and that's why we like to study them. So if you've um, stayed up, like I have, um, to watch all the Brexit votes in the House of Commons chamber, um, you know, then the atmosphere can be you know, really tense, um, really exciting. It's good to watch. And so quite naturally, they're the sort of things that we like to study. But just focusing on these kinds of divisions can give quite a misleading impression about this relationship between Parliament um, and government. Um, the big thing is that it suggests to us that the government dominates Parliament, that we've got this executive dominance that runs through um, every single Parliament, every single um, kind of government. And we tend to focus more on occasions where as well as the occasions where Parliament said no, occasions where Prime Ministers have um, really struggled to get um, MPs to vote the way that they want to, but ultimately have been successful. So we often think about um, John Major during the um, passage of the Maastricht Bill, or we might think about occasions like um, Tony Blair um, and the Labour Party whips trying to force Labour MPs to vote um, in the very early days of the 97 Parliament to um, cut single-parent Benefits, and this was an occasion where lots of MPs didn't want to back the government, but ultimately they were forced to. Um, so we tend to focus on the roles of the party whips, as we call them, in kind of managing, um, encouraging MPs to vote the right way in the division lobbies. Um, more contemporary kind of analysis of Parliament, though, and, and divisions points us to kind of a much broader perspective or a more nuanced kind of view um, about this relationship where we see less about executive dominance and more about a more balanced maybe um, relationship between the two um, and this might mean focusing not just on divisions where the government has actually lost the vote but focusing on all divisions and thinking about what these tell us about what's actually going on in parliament um, and the work of Philip Cowley and Mark Stewart is really, really crucial here um, because what they've been able to do is study um, all the divisions that have happened in Parliament. They've been able to highlight the rebellions that have happened, not just on occasions where governments have lost, but on every single um, vote that we've seen in the Commons Chamber. So they can use that sort of data to say to us that actually what it shows is that Parliaments are becoming more and more rebellious, that we might not see lots of occasions where um, governments are defeated, but we're seeing an increasing number of government MPs, for instance, who are walking through the wrong division lobby, who are voting against the government. And so if we compare parliaments in the 21st century to parliaments in the middle of the 20th century, we see a big difference in the number of MPs who are actually doing this, who are actually voting against the government. The other um, thing that we can do is focus on other features of the legislative process. And this might mean not looking at those divisions and the division lobbies, but looking at other areas where we can see MPs try and actually amend legislation. Um, and my own work on uh, bill committees and the scrutiny of legislation in committees is one example of this, um, because we can see how MPs will utilise um, meetings in committee rooms that are away from the chamber but also how they'll utilise more informal kinds of settings, meetings with ministers in the corridors, meeting with ministers um, in their government departments, between meetings, after committee meetings, to actually try and encourage government to make changes without having to do it formally through divisions in that very public um, kind of way. 
So it might be that MPs meet with government ministers and try and push for one particular change to a bill that will make them much happier with it. And the government might agree to this and they might um, come to the committee room or go to the floor of the House of Commons and introduce an amendment themselves that will tackle the very issue that MPs are concerned about. But we won't necessarily always know that that amendment has been prompted by the concerns of MPs because on paper it will just be a change that government has made itself to its own bill. Um, so it's kind of difficult sometimes to actually get the full picture of what's happening behind the scenes and how much influence MPs are actually having on government. But there's no doubt at all that it does actually happen and the MPs force the government or influence the government into making changes to their own legislation away from that very formal um, setting of the Commons Chamber and away from the division lobbies. And we can see this also repeated in the House of Lords and the work by uh, Meg Russell and Daniel Gover on the House of Lords and divisions in the House of Lords um, also show that peers do the same process as well, that informal interactions behind the scenes are even more important than the occasions where the House of Lords will say no to government. So the most effective political parties and the most effective politicians are often those who recognise that the best way to get change is not by voting against the government, but actually by influencing government ministers in these more informal settings. And a really good example of this um, from the 2009-2010 parliamentary session is the Crime and Security Bill, where one MP who was a member of the bill committee um, on that bill um, met with the minister and actually encouraged them to introduce um, changes to change the definition in that bill of what they referred to as domestic violence to make sure that it included not just um, husbands and wives but that it also included children as well because this is what MPs were really concerned about and that went through as a government amendment and it meant that MPs didn't need to walk through the division lobbies and didn't actually need to have that very formal conflict but they were still able to effect some sort of change to that legislation. So in this way, the relationship between the two branches, between Parliament and government, isn't always what we call a zero-sum a zero game. There's lots of negotiation, there's lots of behind-the-scenes kind of bargaining, and it means that this traditional idea of executive dominance isn't necessarily wrong, but it's a different way of thinking about it, and that the reality of what's going on in Parliament and um, between Parliament and government um, is often very different. We already know that most MPs represent a political party. Um, we've mentioned in previous modules that the government usually has the most MPs, so it has this parliamentary majority, um, and that the official opposition has a really important role to play in the House of Commons as this kind of government in waiting. And we also know that the design of the House of Commons chamber really emphasises this conflict between the two. And because of that, it also emphasises the importance of those two main political parties. So the importance of the Conservatives on the one hand and the Labour Party, currently opposition, on the other hand. And we see that in the way those green benches are designed facing each other that encourage that conflict. And we see it in the way that we've got two dispatch boxes in the House of Commons chamber and only two dispatch boxes. So only the government and the official opposition are the ones who are allowed to actually stand at those boxes in the very centre of the chamber to actually make their points, make their arguments across the table towards each other. But it, actually we need to think about the House of Commons as being about more than just those two parties. 
um, it represents um, a much more multi-party kind of system than we often um, think that it does. So if we look at the current parliament in the last general election, we saw the election of MPs from five other political parties, so parties that weren't Labour or Conservative. So we saw MPs elected for the SNP, the Scottish National Party, for the Liberal Democrats, for the DUP, for Plaid Cymru in Wales, and one MP elected for the Green Party. And this was a little bit of a fall, actually, from pre previous parliaments. So the 2015 parliament had actually had much higher um, representation in terms of the number of political parties. Um, we'd had a UKIP representative, um, and we'd had some parties from Northern Ireland, some smaller um, parties, so the SDLP and the UUP. And more recently, we've also seen a small breakaway group of MPs from the two main parties um, actually come together and form their their own parliamentary grouping, a new parliamentary grouping and a new political party, so that's Change UK or the independent group, um, which is also maybe a sign that this two-party politics um, is, is changing even more. Um, we might see more of this um, political party in future parliaments. Now, we often neglect to think about these smaller opposition party groupings when we think about the work and the behaviour of the House of Commons and also when we talk about executive legislative relations. So I want to start first of all by thinking about where these MPs actually sit in the House of Commons chamber. Um, most people can tell me where the government sit and most people can tell me where the official opposition sit because those dispatch boxes really give you the clue and, and show you where they're going to be in the chamber. Um, often you people can tell me where the Scottish National Party will sit. And if you're looking at Jeremy Corbyn standing at the dispatch box, then the Scottish National Party will be sitting on the green benches to, to the very right at the far end of the House of Commons chamber. But when I ask my own students where the other parties sit, so where Plaid Cymru sit or where the Green Party will sit in the chamber, then I'm often met with lots of blank looks um, and nobody really knows. Um, and that's really understandable. If you are watching the House of Commons on television, um, if you look at photographs of the House of Commons, you usually see that picture of those two dispatch boxes of the leader of the opposition, of the Prime Minister, and you see the MPs behind them. But you don't really see much broader than that. You don't see the rest of the House of Commons chamber. In the same way, if you actually go to Parliament and you sit in the um, public galleries um, looking down on the chamber, then again, they're set up to see that conflict between the two main parties and you find that the smaller political parties are actually sitting beneath you and you can't actually see where they are. You might be able to hear them, but you can't always actually see which MP um, is speaking. So if we're looking at the opposition benches and we know where the Labour Party are and we know where the Scottish National Party sit, then we can identify a few benches behind the SNP. And these are the benches in which all the smaller parties um, have to, to sit on when they're in the chamber. Um, you might know that the House of Commons chamber is very small, that there's not a seat for each individual MP. Um, so these political parties have to kind of share um, two or three benches. So we see one bench behind the Scottish National Party, which is shared by Plaid Cymru, by the Green Party MP, Caroline Lucas, and by the Liberal Democrats, sometimes with some DUPs um, sitting right on the end as well. Behind that, we see the DUP again, and we also see the new political party, Change UK, who have occupied seats that um, were previously Labour Party seats or official opposition seats, kind of spillover seats for when the chamber was very busy. Um, and those are the very back two um, benches on the far right of the House of Commons chamber. 
So it's kind of understandable and quite natural that we overlook these parties because of the way that we don't often notice their presence in the House of Commons chamber. But when we think about executive legislative relations, then we need to think carefully about the position of these parties and in particular about how they're in a much weaker position um, when it comes to actually trying to influence government. So the first obvious reason why they are um, much weaker is that they're such smaller in number. So they don't have as many votes when it comes to these big divisions. They can't very easily swing any sort of vote in their favour. So if we think about Plaid Cymru, who have only four members of parliament, there's very little they can do when they're up against 650, or nearly 650 other um, MPs. They can't um, get their own way just by acting on themselves as a parliamentary group. They're unlikely to change anything. The second and perhaps most important reason is that parliamentary procedure really privileges the role of the two main political parties. And this means that smaller parties have much less of a voice in the Commons Chamber. And if you go and read Erskine May, the famous book of parliamentary practice, you'll see that it actually acknowledges that the two parties have this really dominant position. Um, it says that smaller parties in the House of Commons chamber complicate the arrangements that are already made to accommodate these two political parties, but that they don't destroy the broad principle on which the rest of Parliament works and the way that it's always worked. And we can see this more clearly when we think about the way in which parties participate in the House of Commons chamber during debates. So if we watch a debate on a government bill, for instance, and you see the government minister standing up and making a speech, you'll then see the opposition front bencher standing up and making a speech, the official opposition front bencher. And then we'll see a representative from the Scottish National Party, the SNP, um, who have official third party rights, as we call them, also stand up um, and make a speech about the bill. From there, we'll see the Speaker of House Commons calling MPs from each side of the chamber. Only those three parties have a guaranteed speech at the start of every single debate. And the Speaker will call MPs on the basis of the party composition in the Commons. So we'll see the debate moving from Conservative to Labour, Conservative to Labour, from one side of the House to the other. The SNP might get another MP who's called to speak because of their um, slightly larger size um, in the House of Commons. The rest of the other parties, the smaller parties, have the same chance of being called as any other backbench MP. Um, they don't have any sort of front bench rights. And that means that even if you're the Plaid Cymru spokesperson for foreign affairs, you won't automatically be called to speak in any foreign affairs debate. So you don't necessarily get this guaranteed right to probe or to challenge the government um, on, on whatever the issue up for debate um, actually is. And you might think that this doesn't matter, but it really, really does. And in particular, when small parties are actually called to speak, they're called to speak right at the very end um, of debates, often in the last 30 minutes, the last sort of hour of what might be a six, seven, eight hour um, debate in the Commons. And speaking at the end of a debate means that they aren't really able to make much impact on it. So if you speak to small party MPs, they often say that they find it very frustrating that they can't actually set the agenda or the tone of the debate. They can't define the terms on which the government is actually being probed, whereas the opposition, the official opposition, um, can really do this because they can stand up right at the very start of the debate and actually make their points. And also alongside this, as a debate progresses through the um, in the Commons, 
we see that time limits are introduced by the House of Commons Speaker, by currently John Burko. Um, and this is because the Speaker has to make an assessment of how many MPs are keen to speak in any debate and then try and chop up the time that is available to try and accommodate as many MPs as he possibly can. So we find that the smaller party MPs come in at the very end of the debate and that also they often only have a couple of minutes to actually make their points. So an MP, an official opposition MP, might have 15 minutes at the start of a debate um, or there might be no time limit and they can speak for as long as they like. Whereas Caroline Lucas, the Green MP, might stand up at the end of a debate and she might only have two minutes. And that means that not only can they say very, very little in those two minutes, but they might have a prepared speech, they might have certain things they were desperate to cover um, to challenge the government on, and they've got to rearrange what they were going to say, they've got to chop up their speech, they've got to start again, um, they've got to get across um, as much as they can in, in very, very little time. Um, and the other reason is that nobody is watching them. If you are a journalist and you're writing up a story about the, whatever the debate is that day in the chamber, you'll often sit in the press gallery and watch those initial opening speeches. You'll watch the government minister, you'll watch the official opposition. You might watch the SNP spokesperson, but then very often they'll go away and write up their pieces for publication that afternoon or, or that evening. Um, nobody will be there to watch those small party speeches. And it means that it's much harder for them to actually get that kind of media attention. It's much harder for them to get the sort of publicity that they need to actually um, progress in terms of holding the government to account. And it's not just in debates that we see these smaller parties in this really constrained position. We also see it in other areas of Parliament. And this is largely because they're excluded from what we call the usual channels. Um, they're not entitled to a party whip. They're not entitled to go along to these meetings of party whips where everything is actually decided. And that means that when it comes to select committees or to standing committees, they have far less influence in the committees that they're appointed to and the memberships that they have. So if we look at select committees, we'll see that um, chair, committee chairs of select committees go to the big parties and they don't go to the smaller parties. Um, so we have committee chairs who are Labour MPs, we have committee chairs who are Conservative MPs, and we have one committee chair who is a Liberal Democrat MP, and that's the Science and Technology Committee. And that's not because the Liberal Democrats were necessarily desperate to chair the Science and Technology Committee. It's because um, the party whips for the bigger parties ensured that they took all the more prestigious committees um, as quickly as they could. And the Liberal Democrats were left with Science and Technology because that was the only thing um, that, was, that was left on the table. Um, so they had to have it. The same thing happens on public bill committees when we see legislation being scrutinised. If you're a small party MP, it's very, very rare that you get a place on these committees. Often you get a place because the SNP, um, as a Scottish political party, aren't that keen or interested in being on one of, one of the committees if it's a committee that's studying um, a legislation that's England only or only affects England and Wales, perhaps. Um, they have to really negotiate with other parties to get a position. So when we're thinking about this relationship between Parliament and government and we're thinking about how small parties can influence legislation or can influence government actions and policy, then we've got to think about how they might actually go about this because often it's not in the usual kind of ways. And one of the ways they can do this is by prioritising what they're doing or focusing all of their resources on one very particular issue. So we might see Caroline Lucas, for instance, um, standing up in the House of Commons to talk about one very specific um, environmental policy issue. She might then talk about the same issue at um, question time. She might then ask a Prime Minister's question on this issue. She might then go to a committee 
um, that she's on, the Environmental Audit Committee, and probably a government minister or another witness on this very issue as well. And we see this kind of very repetitive, prolonged kind of activity on one very narrow issue as a good way of really trying to bring attention to something and focus the government's mind on an issue and try and get some change. We also see these parties working through more informal kinds of communication, so the sorts of things we might have talked about in previous modules. So um, meeting with a government minister um, informally um, in the government department, in the division lobby, in a committee corridor, um, to try and talk about particular things that they would really, really like to see changed, but that they might not get the airtime to do on the floor of the House of Commons itself. We also see these smaller parties coming together and working together much more to try and actually effect change, to try and encourage the government to change their mind. Um, so you'll often see SNP MPs or Plaid Cymru MPs and Caroline Lucas perhaps all working together, voting the same way in the division lobbies, um, supporting each other when it comes to tabling amendments to legislation and things, um, trying to increase um, their mass in the House of Commons chamber, trying to uh, amplify the voice that they have. We might also see them being very um, kind of crafty with the procedures that they use on the House floor of the House of Commons. Um, so the SNP, for instance, are very, very good at using interventions in the chamber to really try and maximise the number of MPs they can have to um, actually um, make a speech and be heard. And we saw this um, during the Brexit scrutiny. Um, the very first piece of legislation we saw in the House of Commons was the notification of withdrawal bill, and we saw the SNP very, very cleverly hold the floor in the House of Commons for nearly an hour. Um, Patrick Grady, one of their MPs, stood up to make a speech and let nearly every single SNP MP who was sitting behind him in the House of Commons chamber stand up and make a very short intervention as a way of trying to get as many Scottish voices as they could um, actually heard during the passage of this bill. And we can see some examples of big successes by smaller parties when they've acted in these sorts of ways. Um, so one example is Liberal Democrat, um, Vera Hophouse's private members bill, um, which uh, made upskirting a criminal offence. Um, if you go to her own website, you'll see that she says she worked very closely with the government to ensure that this bill passed, often through these kind of informal channels, ironing out problems with the wording, um, being very actively involved in thinking about cross-party discussions on the bill to make sure that it got passed. Another good example is the progress made by the SNP, um, supported by other smaller parties, on removing what they called the tampon tax, the 5% um, VAT on um, sanitary products, Initially, this was an amendment that was made to the Finance Bill um, in the House of Commons. It was rejected, but by keeping up the pressure, by focusing on this issue over and over again, um, the smaller opposition parties encouraged the government to actually make a change. So the conclusion to all of this, then, is that political parties really do matter in the House of Commons, and that if you are a member of the official opposition party, you're in a much stronger position to force the government to actually change your mind. But this doesn't mean that the smaller parties um, are ine ineffective, that they can't do anything. They're just carrying out the same kinds of activity in a different way to force the government to change its mind. And with a new party in the House of Commons now, with Change UK, with the creation of um, the Brexit Party in 2019, it's very likely that we'll need to think about how these small parties operate in the House of Commons much more um, as we go on to future parliaments. So in this module, I'll be talking about the House of Lords. Now, most of the focus when we think about executive legislative relations 
is on the House of Commons. But it's really important that we don't forget about the work of the House of Lords. Now, the Lords is something of a misunderstood um, and understudied institution. If we think about what we know about the House of Lords, often it's because we've seen pictures of peers in their ermine robes uh, in the newspapers or stories about um, expenses claims for peers attending um, the chamber for very little time. And the actual work of the House of Lords often goes unremarked upon. So I want to start by thinking about some of the key differences between the House of Lords and the House of Commons and really what that means in terms of the, what the Lords is able to do um, when it scrutinises government, when it tries to hold government to account. So the first one is obviously composition. Um, we know that in the House of Commons, MPs are elected, and you should know that in the House of Lords, peers don't have this same kind of electoral base. Um, the vast majority of peers are appointed on the basis of their expertise. And then we have a few leftover hereditary peers um, who are sitting in the House of Lords by birthright. So what this means in practice for its relationship with government is that the, the government doesn't always have a majority in the House of Lords. Because the peers haven't been elected um, and because it's the appointments process um, works on the basis of um, all political parties making suggestions, um, we often get a different party balance to that which is in the Commons. We also have a particular group of peers called crossbenchers in the House of Lords who are peers who don't have the same sort of political affiliations that we see in the House of Commons. So although they work as a group, they don't have a party affiliation. Um, and this accounts for about 180 or so um, members of the House of Lords. And that even more makes sure that the government don't have this inborn majority that they can often rely on in the House of Commons. And as a result, it's no surprise that we see a lot more government defeats in the House of Lords than we do in the House of Commons. So to give some examples, in the 1997-98 session, where we saw the Labour Party with its big majority in the House of Commons losing very few um, votes there in the House of Lords, by contrast, we saw the government experience 39 um, defeats. More recently, in 2015-16 parliamentary session, David Cameron's, again, majority, Conservative government, um, suffered only three defeats in the House of Commons, but it had 60 um, defeats in the House of Lords. So they're much more frequent, it's much more likely to happen. The second thing to think about is the powers of the House of Lords in terms of legislation, so what it's actually formally, constitutionally, perhaps, able to do. And when we talk about this aspect of the House of Lords, there's a tendency to think that the Lords is a very weak um, parliamentary chamber, um, particularly in relation to the House of Commons. And in some respects, that's true. And this is because of constitutional reform that happened at the very start of the 20th century. So most of us can talk about the 1911 um, Parliament Act. So the um, point at which, um, after the Lords causing frustration um, time and time again for the government, um, a piece of legislation, constitutional legislation, was introduced to actually remove the House of Lords' ability to veto um, government bills, um, replacing this with a delaying power of up to two years, and also at the same time removing its powers to delay to veto money bills and making sure that if the House of Lords did not agree to a money bill or a finance bill um, within just a period of a month, that it would be passed anyway. And then later on in 1949, we get this second Parliament Act, which reduces the power of the House of Lords over legislation even further. So removing the two-year delaying power and reducing that to just one year. Um, and those are the, really the key two things we often talk about when we think about the House of Lords. There are also a series of conventions, which again can be seen to further kind of weaken um, the power of the Lords to actually veto or delay 
um, or challenge um, government legislation. So one of these is the Salisbury Convention, which we talked about in a previous module, whereby the House of Lords won't usually reject um, a government bill at the second reading stage, so that's the first um, debate and vote on the bill in the chamber, if it's been um, explicitly mentioned in the party's election manifesto, so if the government can claim a mandate um, for introducing that legislation. There are also conventions around statutory instruments, so the House of Lords, again, doesn't usually... Um, defeat a statutory instrument. So these are often called delegated legislation. They're the more kind of complex, technical, often about implementation um, kinds of um, um, measures. And the third one is that there's this idea or understanding that the government should get its business through the House of Lords in reasonable time, although what, what we consider to be reasonable time um, can be very changeable. So on paper, the House of Lords is in a much weaker position than we see um, MPs in the House of Commons. But there are some other features of the House of Lords which can kind of assist it in scrutinising the government, government and making sure that it's got some ability to actually force changes um, and challenge the government um, in this way. And most of these differences are about procedure and the way that House of Lords procedure differs from the House of Commons. So the first that procedural tool that the House of Lords has is that it has a greater number of opportunities for which... Um, peers can actually put forward changes to bills or amendments to bills and um, actually make suggestions for replacing text, inserting new text into government legislation. Amendments can be tabled in the House of Lords at more stages, so they can also be tabled at the third reading stage, which is something that we don't see in the House of Commons, where third reading is really just a formality. It's a very short debate and a vote. In the House of Lords, peers can still continue to try and introduce um, amendments to try and force changes. The second thing is that it's, this happens on, on the floor of the House of Lords chamber. So in the House of Commons, often scrutiny, um, after the very first debate, it goes to the very small committee rooms where we've got a much smaller group of MPs who are actually talking about the bill in detail. In the House of Lords, committee rooms and committee work doesn't exist in the same sort of way. We see committee stage happening on the floor of the House of Lords chamber um, or in a grand committee room. And it means that peers can participate in every single stage of the process. So it's not reduced to just this small group um, of MPs. Also, we see the selection of amendments in the House of Lords um, is done very differently um, to in the House of Commons. So if a member of the House of Lords wants to debate an amendment of theirs, they want to actually have a vote on one of their amendments, then they're more or less guaranteed to be able to do this. Um, it doesn't work in the same way as the House of Commons, where the Speaker has got a lot of control about which amendments are selected for debate and which amendments can be pushed um, to a division. And the final one is that the House of Lords is what we call a self-regulating chamber. And this means that there are far fewer time constraints um, in the chamber. It regulates itself. In the House of Commons, we see these things called programme motions, which define how much time there is at each stage of a bill um, for MPs to debate it. And it often means that scrutiny is cut short, it's chopped off. Um, the whole sections of bills might not be debated um, because the government's not allowed um, enough time for them to do this. In the House of Lords, the same thing doesn't really happen. And this means that while MPs might have very limited debating time, in the House of Lords, peers have much longer. Debates can go on for you know many, many hours. Often peers are sitting late into the evening, into the early hours, um, speaking about legislation. Anybody who wants to speak will usually be um, guaranteed to get a speech um, in the chamber. So there's much more opportunity to make these changes. Any amendments that are agreed in the House of Lords have to be agreed also by the House of Commons. And this is where we get what we call this ping-pong between the two chambers, where they're negotiating on their amendments and trying to, um, trying to come to a compromise, often, arrangement. 
even the delaying power that the House of Lords has that we talked about in terms of um, the constitutional reforms that have happened over the last um, 100 years or so, um, even these delaying powers can be important. If you're the government, you want to introduce your legislation you know, fairly instantly. If you're the government minister, you're very proud of your uh, government bill and you take real ownership of it. And you don't really want to have this bill delayed for a 12-month period if the House of Lords isn't going to agree to it. You don't want these very prolonged negotiations between the Commons and the Lords over certain amendments. You want to try and get your bill introduced um, as quickly as you can, implemented as fast as you can. Um, so even here, the government can be encouraged to make more concessions to the House of Lords just to ensure a speedier passage of their legislation. We can also see examples of occasions where the House of Lords has not been afraid to um, go against what we might consider to be the normal conventions of its behaviour. So some of the things that we talked about um, right at the start. And tax credits legislation is a really good example of this. Um, so when the government wanted to lower the income threshold for tax credits um, back in 2015, um, MPs and peers were a bit concerned about it, and it was quite a controversial um, proposal. It went through Parliament as one of these statutory instruments, so the sort of legislation that most MPs aren't, aren't really bothered about, um, it's kind of under-the-radar kind of legislation. Um, in the House of Commons, it was passed, and then this statutory instrument moved to the House of Lords, where peers um, debated it. Now, the convention is normally that the House of Lords wouldn't reject a statutory instrument. And in fact, since the Second World War, only five statutory instruments had actually been rejected um, by the upper chamber. So the chances were that this, amendment, this, this statutory instrument was going to pass. Peers debated it in the chamber, um, and four amendments to it were tabled um, by peers from different um, sides of the Lords, different um, political parties, and from the crossbenches. And um, two of these amendments were actually passed. The first one was a crossbench amendment by a Baroness Meacher, um, which said that the House of Lords declined to consider the statutory instrument until the government had actually considered the impact that it would have on, um, on the people that were going to be affected by this tax credits change. And because of this amendment, because it was made, the instrument couldn't pass in the normal way. Then there was another amendment that was passed, a second amendment that was tabled by a Labour peer, which was a similar kind of amendment, but proposed that there were some transitional arrangements that would be introduced before the statutory instrument could pass, so that the government could think about the impact on these families and try and come to some sort of arrangement. Now, the government was so frustrated by the behaviour of uh, peers um, during this debate on, the, on tax credits um, that the very next day after these um, amendments were passed, they introduced a review of the powers of the House of Lords um, to try and um, recommend that uh, some new legislation was passed to make sure that it was put down in the law that the House of Lords could not um, veto statutory instruments, that they would have to pass them. Um, ultimately, it hasn't actually come into effect, so the situation hasn't changed. Um, and the government would later announce um, a big U-turn on this tax credits policy. So we need to think finally about what this actually tells us about the relationship between the House of Lords and the government. And the first thing this shows is that despite its constrained position on paper, the upper chamber can still flex its muscles when it needs to and when it wants to, reinterpreting procedures, pushing the government to reconsider. And a really good source of House of Lords defeats um, of government is the Constitution Unit's um, really excellent record of House of Lords defeats. They will um, log every single defeat in the upper chamber. So the second thing and the final thing is that it also demonstrates that the House of Lords can assist the House of Commons in its scrutiny of government, um, that the two can work together. Um, the tax credit change didn't meet with uh, mass approval in the House of Commons. 
MPs, including the government's own MPs, spoke very passionately against these tax credits changes. But because of the difference in composition between the House of Commons and the House of Lords, because of the parliamentary majority in the House of Commons, um, the statutory instrument actually passed the, in the Commons. MPs couldn't do anything about to, to try and stop it. When it came to the House of Lords, because of the position of the crossbenchers, because of the greater independence of mind and spirit that we get in the House of Lords, because of the fact that um, peers um, aren't up for our election, um, we saw a much bigger push um, to actually try and stop this um, change. So it was the House of Lords ultimately that did it, but it, we can see it in terms of the two chambers actually working together. The negotiated deal passed um, and how Brexit legislation has really been considered. Because while we might think about these big defeats, these big three votes, um, as the most memorable feature um, of the Brexit um, case study of this relationship between the two branches, um, actually there's been a much bigger kind of battle between Parliament and government from the very start of the Brexit process, from the point at which the very first legislation, the notification of withdrawal bill, was actually introduced into the Commons Chamber. So let's think about why this relationship has been much trickier why the Prime Minister ultimately um, lost those Brexit votes. And there are five different reasons um, that we can point to. The first one, and perhaps the most obvious one, is that the very nature of Brexit as a political issue, as a policy issue, has been very, very divisive. Um, we know that the referendum result was very close, um, and we know that there's been disagreement between MPs in the Chamber. And when we usually look at the House of Commons and we think about divisions, we think about um, Parliament versus Government, Often we're talking about differences between the political parties. We're talking about inter-party um, conflict. So the differences between the Conservative Party and their MPs' views and the Labour Party and their MPs' views. But what Brexit has done is it's really made us focus much more on what we call intra-party um, divisions and splits. So the divisions within the Conservative Party, um, the divisions within the Labour Party. And we've seen most parties in the House of Commons actually have to deal with these kind of internal conflicts. Um, even the smaller parties, the Liberal Democrats, for instance, we saw um, Stephen Lloyd, one of their MPs, actually resign from the party, become an independent MP in December of 2018, um, on the basis that he couldn't really stand by the party's um, principles and position on Brexit. Um, and he wanted to vote for the government's um, Brexit deal. But he could only do so... Um, as not as a member of that political party, but as an independent. There are very few parties that have been unaffected by it. Um, even the Greens, even though they have only one MP in the House of Commons, um, they've had a split kind of between the chambers because Caroline Lucas, the MP, um, has a very different stance on Brexit to Jenny Jones, who is the Green Party's only um, member of the House of Lords. So we've had to really think about the way that this division between those parties works, and it's made it much more difficult um, for government to actually... Um, try to process which MPs will vote which way um, on Brexit legislation because they've not only got to think about their own MPs and which of their backbenchers will vote for the government, which will vote against the government, but they've also got to think about which MPs within the other political parties might actually um, decide to support the government and walk through those division lobbies. The second reason is what we might call the political or, or parliamentary context. So when we again think about executive legislative relations, we usually think about and this idea of a majority government with a parliamentary majority. Obviously, the 2017 general election um, brought about this minority government situation. Um, it was one in which a small party, the DUP, um, 
became a much more prominent kind of um, party in the House of Commons in terms of its role because it had this confidence and supply arrangement um, with the government. So the DUP um, were going to support the government um, to try and get some of their policy issues passed, some of their legislation passed. Um, and the government were going to rely on the DUP to support them um, throughout that parliament. Um, and what this has meant for Brexit is that the DUP have been in this really good position where they've been able to actually refuse to support the government um, being a Northern Irish, Irish party, they've been particularly concerned with um, the issue of the backstop, which has been very, very controversial um, during the Brexit um, negotiations. Um, and then for all those three um, big votes in the House of Commons, they've actually refused to support um, Theresa May. Um, they've walked through the other um, division lobbies. So that's been a major blow to the government. It's made it even harder for them um, to get this Brexit legislation passed. The third one is decisions that have been made by the government itself. And again, when we think about executive dominance, um, we know that the government is probably going to be used to dominating um, the House of Commons. Um, and it's really tried to do this and to get its own way throughout the Brexit um, negotiations, throughout the Brexit process. But some of the decisions that it's actually made, some of the ways that it's tried to control the House of Commons, have actually made it much harder to reach this sort of compromise between the two branches. So we see, for instance, um, that the government has really tried to delay to put off actually allowing MPs to debate the different options beyond the Prime Minister's um, Brexit deal. Um, so for a long, long time, it didn't really want to give MPs the space to consider any alternatives, and it used its control of the parliamentary timetable to do this. And that meant that MPs were very often discussing the process of Brexit or of the process of which they would agree to the Brexit deal or not agree to the Brexit deal, rather than actually debating the deal itself or other alternatives to it. If we see when the first vote was held by the Prime Minister on the Brexit deal, um, it was meant to be held in December 2018, um, and this was already getting very late. The government had pushed it and left it until the last possible moment. Um, when it became apparent that MPs were not going to support the government in sufficient numbers, they put off the deal, the, the vote on the deal once again. Um, we had the Christmas recess, MPs came back in January, and only then um, was the vote actually put before MPs once again. So the government have really tried to run down the clock, this ticking Brexit clock, um, against the Article 50 deadline for the end of March 2019, um, and they prolonged this um, debate, put off the divisions on the Brexit deal until the last possible moment, in the hope that this would encourage MPs to actually vote um, for the deal. Um, in the end, it didn't, um, but that was their strategy. We can also see the government's kind of reluctance to engage in this kind of cross-party working, the sort of cross-party negotiations that are really needed in a minority parliament, um, being much more willing to compromise, to negotiate with their own backbenchers rather than with MPs from other parties. So we see um, the European Reform Group, the ERG MPs, people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, holding very um, strong positions um, and being in a much stronger negotiating position um, on many occasions and the government actually ignoring pleas from other MPs um, to actually talk about alternatives. The fourth thing is decisions that have been made by the House of Commons, by MPs themselves during this process. And here, one of the key figures is Dominic Grieve from the Conservative Party. Another one is Yvette Cooper from the Labour Party. Um, and these are probably the two most important MPs in terms of um, Parliament's desire to seize control of the Brexit process um, throughout the latter part of 2018 in particular and the early parts of 2019. 
So we saw Dominic Grieve being at the at the head of the campaign for MPs um, to try and introduce what was called the meaningful vote, to um, stress the importance of this meaningful vote, to ensure that when Parliament had the opportunity to debate with the Brexit deal, um, that if Parliament voted no, it would be listened to by government, that they would have the space to um, discuss alternatives, that the government would have to come back to the House and um, to actually report on progress. And we saw MPs make use of lesser-known um, parliamentary conventions, so things like um, humble addresses, um, which were used during opposition day debates, so um, usually quite broad debates on issues, but they were used during these opposition debates to try and force the government to release information on Brexit that they otherwise wouldn't have done so. So um, first of all, it happened um, in terms of um, releasing impact assessments, so the impacts of, of Brexit, the impact of leaving the European Union. Um, the government had said that they'd produce them, MPs asked to see them, the government weren't producing them, so they used this humble address um, process to force the government to actually um, lay these papers before the House. And when that was so successful, MPs then used it again a second time to force the government to release their legal advice around the issue of the Northern Ireland backstop. So another example um, and something that became a really valuable tool for MPs um, to use against government um, as they scrutinised the Brexit process. We also had some cross-party legislation more recently in 2019, the Yvette Cooper, um, Oliver Letwin bill, um, a bill which um, has recently received royal assent, um, so is now an official act of parliament, um, which was an attempt by MPs to try and ensure that if parliament did not agree to the Brexit deal, um, that we wouldn't enter a no-deal um, situation, that we'd actually extend the Article 50 um, process. And this one, this um, bill, um, only passed in the House of Commons by one vote. It only passed really because there was a small group of Conservative rebel MPs um, who actually voted um, with Yvette Cooper to get the bill passed. And the fifth one is the role of the House of Commons Speaker. So John Burko himself, um, a man who has quite a history of standing up for the rights of backbench MPs, someone who is not afraid to make those controversial decisions to kind of amplify um, the voices of MPs in the chamber and ensure that they hold the government to account. And the Speaker's selection, in particular, of an amendment that was put forward by backbench MPs, put forward by Dominic Grieve, that Conservative um, backbencher once again, um, to a government motion in early 2019, um, which something which went completely against normal parliamentary norms and conventions. Normally the Speaker wouldn't choose an amendment um, to be discussed on a government motion, but in this case he did. Um, and it, what it meant was, when it was passed, it enabled MPs to actually force the government to come back to the House after the first defeat on the Brexit vote, um, much sooner than they would otherwise have done so. So it forced them to come back to the House in a matter of days to actually set out next steps, explain what happened, what they were going to do from here, um, not really giving them the sort of time that they wanted um, to actually think about you know, their response to Parliament and their, what their next sort of strategy um, would be. So this kind of Brexit case study shows us something of an atypical relationship between Parliament and government, with Parliament on many occasions maybe having the upper hand or forcing the government to come to the House to explain itself or really trying to constrain the government and force it to work within parameters that have been really defined by um, MPs themselves. What we don't know and what we're still waiting to find out 
is what impact all of this scrutiny of Brexit will actually have on the relationship between Parliament and government going forward. So it won't be until um, the Brexit deal is negotiated, if it is negotiated. Um, as we're filming this, it's not being agreed, and we're still waiting for the Prime Minister um, to put the deal before MPs once again. Um, but once Brexit is, is cleared, it's, it's off the parliamentary agenda, and we're back to the more kind of mundane pieces of legislation, policy issues, the sort of normal run-of-the-mill stuff that MPs are debating. We need to be aware of what's happened and it'll be interesting to really see what impact it's had on this relationship between the two branches. So will MPs learn some lessons from the Brexit process? Will the sort of procedures that they've been using to hold the government to account during Brexit issues, these um, you know humble addresses, um, putting um, amendments down on motions, will the speakers' um, receptive attitude to backbench MPs in terms of their amendments actually continue or will we go back to um, the same old traditional relationship between the two branches um, where it's much more balanced and we're probably going to have to wait until the next general election and the next parliament to actually see the impact of that. Okay that uh, completes uh, Dr Louise Thompson's many lectures. Uh, just to highlight something obviously I always tell you about politics, uh, it's a process and not an event. Clearly, at the time she was uh, making these lectures, putting them together, uh, Boris was not Prime Minister. Uh, Boris did not have an 80-seat majority. Uh, most of the Remainers, and indeed Change um, UK Party, which was a kind of a, a version of disgruntled Labour, disgruntled Conservatives, uh, brought together in a party. That's all disappeared. Dominic Greaves, no longer he in Parliament, he lost his seat as well. So in many ways, the path was very clear uh, on this oven-ready Brexit, getting it done deal, or ultimately what could have been no deal. Um, but of course, <laughs> Louise Thompson couldn't have anticipated the impact also on Parliament and the concerning degree to, of executive power, perhaps exercised in many areas uh, over uh, COVID, use of statutory instruments, secondary legislation or delegated legislation, sometimes called, the extent to which even on the Conservative backbenches, those who, some in any case, is quite an overlap uh, from the ERG to the uh, COVID recovery, CRG group. So none of that was mentioned. So it always tells you you have to be on your toes in politics, keep watching events. Uh, and it means to say over the next four or five months, uh, normality, well, it's hard to say there's going to be normality in Parliament. Um, there is a, a genuine concern of the failure uh, of uh, the Conservative government uh, to actually uh, release a lot of the uh, information. Um, also, we've now got a trade deal, but as, as a number of people have said, even on the Conservative side, it is, it's not a done deal yet. It has to be in many ways uh, worked out how it's going to impact. Uh, particularly, they're now talking about the impact not only so much on goods, and trade, but on services, which is a crucial part of the British economy. About eight percent of the British economy is dependent upon the City of London, and the financial and legal services provided there. So essentially, watch this space. Um, one little sort of uh, postscript to everything. Maybe at the start of this recording, you heard noises off. Um, that was my eighty-one-year-old father-in-law, Tom, uh, who accidentally walked into the room, and uh, he doesn't have the greatest of hearing. So I was trying to say, "I'm shush, I'm recording." So that's life as well. The unexpected, expect the unexpected, uh, if you want to put it that way. Anyway, I hope that's of some assistance to you. Just a quick reminder. Uh, beyond the introduction, her first mini lectures on conflict last. 
11 minutes 35. So that gives you sort of an idea of what you might be making notes on. Divisions, uh, number two, 11, 21. Uh, political parties, number three, 16 uh, minutes, 17 seconds. The House of Lords, um, grand total number four of 12.44. And finally, the fifth lecture on Brexit, we just heard, 13 minutes, 10. I always say to you, uh, when you're making notes on this, try and turn them into uh, questions and answer. Maybe for each of them, aim for maybe 10 to start with, 10 Q&As uh, for each of the lectures. That gives you a grand total of 50. Uh, which would uh, hopefully form a good revision base. And as I said, there's a mixture of the um, the old, the new, the borrowed and the blue, um, which I do hope helps you uh, with your course because there's bound to be a 26 marker, possibly reflecting on whether or not the executive is or has become more dominant or less dominant, the extent to which scrutiny um, or the legislative role, or the, I don't think they'll contact the, the representative role, I don't think that's likely to come up, um, is likely to be a 26 marker. And again, of course, events, events. Uh, let's see if there's actually going to be uh, formal exams. But in any case, it uh, could well be something that you'll do an assessment on and could well be on your mock exam. I don't know how they're going to organise that during the month of January, but uh, good luck. Anyway, uh, au revoir for now. I'll be making a number more of these. I will try and place this on a platform It'll probably be put onto Anchor. I will try and put that along with the other ones um, on my Anchor platform, which you should be able to access. And this one will go under the heading, obviously, uh, of Parliament. And I'll probably put a sort of a little sort of link, Massillet or Dr. Louise Thompson as your, your link to it. Okay, bye. These figures we had yesterday showed more than 50,000 new cases of coronavirus in the UK, and another 981 people have died. There are now more people in hospital being treated with COVID-19 in England than there were at the peak of the first wave in April. Hugh Montgomery is Professor of Intensive Care Medicine at University College London and Clinical Counsel for the Intensive Care Society, works in an intensive care unit in North London and uh, I think he's currently at work. How are things with you today there, Hugh? Um, not at all good, um, but that's nothing unusual for this morning. Um, we're we're in a lot of trouble um, in UK intensive care now. What does that mean exactly? What does that look like? Um, just huge numbers coming in. Um, huge numbers coming in. So, you know, my heart goes out as well to the emergency departments. I mean, our own one, but everyone else with whom I'm talking, their emergency departments are seeing the tsunami in the last week or two of cases. The wards are flooded. Um, Everyone's working at maximum stretch, really. We've had to double up on, or sometimes triple up, on consultant staff in. Uh, the nursing staff are back to being very overstretched in some areas. It's one ITU nurse to four patients again. Um, and the numbers are still rising. What kind of conditions, then, are people are coming in with? How are they presenting there? Uh, it's exactly the same. So this, this quotes new variants. So we should be a bit clear on this. I mean, it's severity of illness caused by it is, is no worse or better than the first one. It's it's not a, a, a nastier type of the virus. And its transmissibility is indeed a little bit higher. But it's making me actually very angry now that people are laying the blame on the virus. And it's not the virus, it's people. People are not washing their hands. They're not keeping two metres distance. They're not wearing their masks. I've seen delivery people coming into this hospital in the last two days with no masks on, as if there's nothing happening here. This isn't the virus, this is people. People are not doing what they should be doing. Um, so we're seeing the same conditions. It's usually respiratory, uh, as the presenting complaint. 
uh, and then going on mounting levels of oxygen, going on to non-invasive ventilatory support, and then doing what they did the last time, which is some of them get better and others just suddenly crump and end up on ventilators and die or survive. Um, and, and that's the exit. And the problem with this, of course, is that it takes people a long time to get better. Even if they're on a ward, uh, on non-invasive support, it can be a week to 10 days or more. Uh, once you're on a ventilator, it can be weeks or months before you're out. So we've got both taps wide open and the drainage from the bath is very small because the drainage is death or long survival. Uh, and the numbers are just mounting up. I know We've got to switch the taps off here. I know in the past you've talked about watching people who appear to be managing the virus and then having this very sudden deterioration and dying. Yeah, Is that something that you still see? Yes, routinely. I mean, I went home to try to get a shower and stuff a couple of hours ago and I was called back in again at about half past four with someone exactly the same way, uh, uh, someone who was pregnant who was managing just about and is not anymore managing. So this is, yeah, it's the same as it was the first time around. The virus isn't different. And we should also be a bit clearer. There has been a lot of this myth out there that doctors now have new treatments. We don't. We've got one new intervention, which is a steroid. But you have to treat 100 people to save three to four admissions to intensive care. It, this isn't the big game changer. And there's nothing else that's new. We don't have any new treatments. That's the only thing we've got. So there's nothing out there that's, that's changed the, the landscape for us particularly. That patient, sorry, who, who, who you described there, who's pregnant, so we're talking about someone who's relatively young in that case. Yeah, and it's always been the way. There's this great myth that the hospital's just overwhelmed with demented 90-year-olds, but sad to say that then those are not the people we have. Um, those people die because families and the patients have usually made decisions that intensive care or hospital admission would not be appropriate for them. So those are people who don't make it very often to hospital. So the ones who make it in are the people who have a chance of surviving with treatment. And the selected ones who get to intensive care are the same because, very sadly, people who are elderly with multiple comorbidities wouldn't survive intensive care. So they don't get to us. So the people we're getting are indeed, as the first wave, really, lots of people of my age, I'm 58, um, and I would say half the patients on my own unit are younger than I am. And, you know, this that wouldn't be a, a particularly unusual age range, really. It's, it's middle-aged people or a little bit older <clears throat> that we're getting. Gosh. Is this worse than it was back in April for you? Um, well, we're better set up. We know what we're getting now. We didn't understand the disease first time around, so at least we understand the disease. Um which we didn't before. We were getting blindsided every day first time round. We thought it was just going to be a lung problem, and then we realised it was a lung and kidney and liver and muscle and brain problem. Um, so at least we're not getting caught out anymore. Um, and the infrastructures are a little better. So in our own hospital, we were just we'd ended up with two to three patients per bed. We've now got transport facilities in London, and are really I have to say. The, the one good part about this, again, is just the extraordinarily wonderful people in the NHS. I just cannot tell you what a privilege it is to work with them. Um, everyone is polite and kind and helpful and cheerful. Um, we're moving patients around um, the most stretched hospitals, it's accounting to those that are a little less stretched. Um, but it can't keep going on like this in that I don't know at what point we're going to run out of capacity of ITU beds 
and indeed acute beds in London, um, if that will happen. Um, if it does, I guess there'll have to be decanting between cities, I'm guessing, that we'd have to start moving people around. But bear in mind, this is not something we do lightly. This is normally something we'd be penalised as a quality indicator for, is moving patients between hospitals when they didn't need to go for a specialist treatment. Um, but that's the situation we'll soon be in. We're already in that situation between hospitals in London, but we might soon be in it between cities uh, of having to move people in ambulances because we've run out of beds where they could otherwise be treated. So my, my appeal again, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely not an apologist for this or any other government or political party. It's not a political statement. But the, the problem here, I can't reiterate enough, is people. Um, 50% or more of people will not even know they have this virus. They'll have such mild disease that they might not even know they've got symptoms and that they're spreading it. But this is very highly contagious. Each person can spread this to four to five people in an enclosed space, and each of those can spread it to four to five people. So one person can infect hundreds of thousands of people very easily. Um, people just have, I'm really sorry, I know it's horrible, I'm fed up to the back teeth with this virus too, and I want to see my friends and family and hug someone, but we can't. We just can't do this right now. So I'm really, really sorry that it's New Year's Eve. It's going to be miserable, but it has to be. Please don't gather in masses don't make this the last one song don't give it a well it's all going to be locked down so we'll have one more night out because we can't have another spread of this we're going to you know it takes 10 days for someone who's infected to hit an intensive care unit um so the ba bad behavior that might have happened over christmas we're not going to see that until next week and if people behave badly on new year we're not going to get that hitting us until the 8th or 10th of january um so i just my appeal is i know it's horrible but please just it's hands face space, and part of that is not mixing with lots of people. How much time have you had off over this period, and how, how are you doing, just generally yourself? Well, I, I'm all right. I mean, it's, you know, we're all, you know, I, I can't complain, um, and I wouldn't. We, I chose this job, and I'm, I love doing my work, and I'm, you know, people talk about the stress of work. Well, the stress of having no job is far worse. So my sympathy is with the people who have been made unemployed. You alluded to that in your introduction. The people whose jobs are uncertain, whose businesses have gone under. And those are the people for whom, you know, we, I don't deserve any sympathy at all. The nursing staff do. They're really, really overstretched. Um, it's the people without the jobs and so forth. And again, this is just something we've got to remember. We can't keep lurching between tier one, tier two, tier four. Um, if everyone just behaved themselves, life actually could carry on pretty reasonably. And we've seen that in other countries, Vietnam, Taiwan, places where people really, really, really just stick to the rules. They haven't had to have these massive national lockdowns. Their life continues pretty much as, you know, as normal, except that people keep the two-metre distances, always wear their masks, don't gather in large numbers, and alcohol gel their hands regularly. If we all did this, the schools could carry on, and we could carry on very much more normally. Um, it's because people suddenly lurch between, oh, I'm locked down to whoopee-doo, let's all cram into a bar. This is the problem. Mm. Um, I know that you're under pressure to go. Are you all right? I've, a couple more questions br just briefly. Is that okay? Of course, yeah. I, I, I had a conversation with someone yesterday, and, um, and he said to me, I talked about moving into Tier 4 in our particular area and kind of raised his eyes to the heavens, and I said, well, you know, nearly a 1,000 patients dying yesterday terrible news and he said well you know that's what they tell us 
Um, it's 28 days within a test of positive test of COVID, but phew, that could mean anything. So well, what do you say like, to that person? Well, I, I just don't know what to say to these people. I was reflecting on this yesterday. I don't know whether this is, I just don't know whether this is a measure of the fact that people have become just utterly selfish or whether people are very, very poorly educated or whether people have lost the capacity to think and read good journalism and weigh evidence or whether they can be bothered to do it. Because I don't know what they think people like me are doing. Are we meant to be making this up? Are we, is this some national conspiracy where every intensive care unit is locking its doors because actually there's no one in them? I, I fail to understand what this is. I suspect that it's actually um, selfishness, actually, that it gives people an excuse to carry on. And it's unacceptable. And before, when this first happened in February, I gave an interview for Channel 4 where I said that people who behave like this have blood on their hands. And they need to remember this. And anyone who's listening to this who doesn't wear their mask, who behaves like this, they have blood on their hands. They was, they're spreading this stuff virus. Other people will spread it and people will die. They won't know they've killed people, but they have. Um, and, you know, I, it's, it's horrifying. We, you know, we're seeing whole families coming in now. And I'm watching one parent, then another parent, or a parent and a child die. You know, I'm watching whole families getting wiped out here. And it's got to stop. The, the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary both gave some indication that perhaps things will be looking brighter by Easter, by spring. How optimistic are you as we head into 2021? Well, I'm not uh, optimistic in the short term. Um, the only thing that will make it better by spring is people behaving themselves. And again, that's independent of Tier 1 to Tier 4. And my behaviour has been identical whether we're in Tier 1 or Tier 4. I alcohol gel, I wear a mask, I keep two metres distance. And I do know there are people that have to go to work. It makes it difficult. They've got kids at school that might bring it in. They're poor. They've got extended families crammed into very difficult living conditions. I get, I get that. These, it's, it's hard to avoid. But for everyone else... Um, the only answer is going to be people behaving themselves because bear in mind the vaccine in the first tranche is going to the people who are most likely to die and as i've already said those are the people that we don't see in the hospitals very much because they die outside the hospital or they come in and there's a treatment escalation plan because we know they wouldn't survive intensive care so they die at the moment so their lives will be saved from the vaccine that's great but it won't take the pressure off the hospital service um, next in that is hospital staff, which I have to say, I wasn't convinced by this. I was saying, I'm not sure I need the vaccine. I can care for myself and wear a mask. But um, we are seeing increasing numbers of staff nationally off sick now because we're just exposed to so much of this. Uh, and as the numbers of staff go down and the numbers of patients go up, so I think it isn't unreasonable that frontline staff get this. But the people we're seeing, most of the people in acute medicine and on the ward would not be in the first tier priority for getting the vaccine. And the sad part is the people that you really want to vaccinate are the 17% of people who are spreading 70% of the virus. But those are the very people you talked about earlier on who are spreading the virus because they're saying, oh, it's a conspiracy or I'm not going to get sick. 
Um, and that's our problem. It's a strange contradiction, isn't it? Well, it really is. Yeah. Hugh, you've made quite an impression this morning uh, on one person at least. Uh, this text here, I was going to have people over tonight because I don't trust the government. I'm not now. This doctor should be the one giving the messages. Thank you. So at least on, on one individual, one household, uh, you've, you've made an impact. Thank you for well, your time. I'm very grateful to you. And I have to say that just on a personal basis, I think Five Lives reporting on this has been exemplary. Um, and so you're a very trusted voice for me. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. But we, we are entirely reliant on, on the brilliant people that we have, our contributors uh, like yourself, to, to tell us what's happening. Um, I hope it, it you know goes as well as it can do for you and your staff there today. Thank you for your time. Oh, really you. appreciate well, it. Thank you. All Bye. the best. And Happy New Year. Just seems like a strange thing to be saying after the conversation we've just had, doesn't it? Uh, lots